to the Families Voices podcast. Our podcast today is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The Family Voices podcast is a series of conversations with families of young children with a developmental delay or disability. We aim to build parents' knowledge, skills and confidence in navigating early childhood services and supports. The podcast is also an opportunity for families to share their stories. This podcast series is brought to you by Early Childhood Intervention Australia, VICTAS. We're a membership-based organisation that's proudly worked alongside families, practitioners and other organisations that provide supports for young children with disability or developmental delay and their families for over 35 years. To learn more about the podcast and our organisation, please visit ekiavic.org.au. Hello, I'm Kerry Bull and this is a special edition of the Family Voices podcast. Early Childhood Intervention Australia, VicTAS, has partnered with the Department of Health to share key messages with you about COVID-safe behaviours and up-to-date vaccine information. This episode has been recorded on the 15th of December 2022. It's important to remember that advice may change and you can keep in touch with COVID information through the Department of Health website. Professor Margie Danchen from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital is joining us today to discuss COVID-safe information, particularly in relation to young children with disabilities and their families. Hello, Margie. Good to have you here. Good morning, Kerry. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's our, our pleasure. Um, would you like to introduce yourself a little to the listeners? Absolutely. So I'm a paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, uh, and I'm also a vaccinology researcher, which means I do research in all things vaccines. And particularly, I've been very involved with the COVID-19 vaccine rollout here in Victoria. And I actually was seconded uh, to the Department of Health last year. And one of my main roles was actually working closely with the department to understand the needs of parents and their motivation to get their children vaccinated and how we could best support children uh, and their families for children to get vaccinated and particularly children who are at higher risk of severe COVID infection, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So, um, yeah, the main focus of my work and my research is around building confidence in vaccines and looking at ways to get high vaccine uptake in groups and populations who are at greater risk and who need those vaccines the most. Yeah, great. Well, let's talk about those um, people who are at risk a little later. But first, can we start by talking about children and COVID? What are the risks of children getting COVID? Yeah, and this has been something that obviously, you know, everyone has been witnessing children getting COVID infection. We've seen that a lot more since the Omicron wave in sort of December, January, February this year. And I think most of us can see that children do not get that seriously unwell from COVID infection in the most part. Um, and that in some ways COVID is like many other viral uh, respiratory infections that children experience. But in fact, 
COVID is a more complicated virus and it is something that we need to understand that kids can get very sick from COVID infection. And when we say very sick, what do we mean? So yes, in the most part, children will get a runny nose, a fever, a cough, some aches and pains, but a proportion of children uh, may need admission to hospital because they can't drink as well for some fluids or they might get some uh, respiratory infection and need some support with oxygen or, or even some antibiotics if we're worried that they might have a bacterial infection alongside the COVID infection. And then children can also get more seriously unwell and need to go to the intensive care unit. And we've seen that more with um, a strange condition called paediatric inflammatory multi-system syndrome or PIMS-TS. It's a bit of a mouthful, but what that actually means is some children can get this uh, severe inflammation of many organs in the body and they can get very sick. It's, it's quite rare. It happens in about one in 3,000 kids or so. But this PIMS-TS syndrome is nasty and, and kids need support in ICU and more intensive treatment. And it happens about two to six weeks after the acute infection with COVID. It's not straight away. But that is one of the more severe complications of COVID infection. And then, of course, we are also concerned about some children that may go on to experience longer lasting or chronic symptoms from COVID infection, something that is called long COVID. And we can talk about that a little bit more later when we talk about maybe the benefit of vaccination. We know long COVID is a lot less common in children than adults. It happens in maybe one to 2% of kids. But of course, we don't want children to get COVID infection and then two, three months down the track, still be experiencing symptoms, whether it be fatigue, respiratory symptoms, headaches, and those sorts of things. So I think COVID does have um, a direct impact on kids' health. And as I said, in the most part, children experience it as a respiratory infection, but there are these more severe complications that kids can get. And unfortunately, those complications are more likely in children with disabilities, for example. Can you talk a bit more about that, Margie, about how that uh, affects children with disability? Yeah, and this is a really important thing to be aware of and it will also, you know, underpins the recommendations for vaccination, particularly in children under the age of five. But we do know that children with disability, um, particularly those who require assistance with their activities of daily living, um, for example, kids with cerebral palsy, or children with Down syndrome as well are at higher risk of getting sicker with COVID infection. So needing to go to hospital and potentially needing support in hospital with fluids or antibiotics or other measures. But it's not only children with disability that are at higher risk, it's also children who have a lowered immune system, something we call being immunocompromised. And that might be because of medications they're taking that suppress the immune system, or it might be because they have an illness that affects their immune system, uh, you know, such as cancer and, and the treatment that you have for cancer can suppress um, a child's immune system. Uh, and there are also specific um, conditions that affect the child's immune system directly. And then the third big group of kids who are at higher risk are children who have complex or multiple health conditions. And what do we mean by that? Things like kids who have 
complex congenital heart disease or neuromuscular conditions or chronic lung disease, type 1 diabetes. Um, and of course, a lot of children who have disabilities also have other health conditions as well. So a big thing for parents listening today to be aware of is that these children are at higher risk of getting more severely unwell from COVID. And these are the children in particular that we would like to see receive the recommended uh, doses of, of COVID vaccine. Yeah, well, let's talk about vaccines then, Margie. What, what are the current recommendations for children? Well, you know, you can understand parents feeling a little bit confused. It's a bit of a minefield, the vaccines, depending on the age of the kids, uh, because the dose of the strength of the vaccine, if you like, the vaccine dose differs depending on the age of the child. But in general, um, kids are only recommended to get the mRNA vaccine. So that's the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. And as I said, the dose differs. So for example, um, for teenagers who sort of 12 to 18 years, they're recommended to get the adult dose of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. And that's two doses, eight weeks apart. Primary school aged children, so kids five to 11 years, um, we recommend that they get a third of the adult dose for Pfizer, and it's about half of the adult dose for the Moderna vaccine. And then for the littleies, those children who are six months to five years, they get a tenth of the adult dose for the Pfizer vaccine. So that's only three micrograms. And for the Moderna vaccine, it's a quarter of the adult dose, um, and that's only 25 micrograms. So it's really important for parents listening and, and providers to know, obviously, that for younger children, the um, dose of the vaccine is lower. And in general, it's still those two doses, eight weeks apart. But for the Pfizer vaccine in the under fives, it is actually three doses. So, And we can talk about that if you want to go into a bit more detail. Yeah, I think it can be confusing for families, can't it, because of those uh, differences, but uh, Very much so, and, and I would encourage parents listening, you know, hopefully I have really, um, you know, underlined the real need and benefit um, of children with disabilities and, and complex medical conditions to get their COVID vaccines, um, even if they've had COVID infection, and we can talk about that a little bit more, but go and speak to your GP. They'll make sure that they receive the right vaccine and the right dose. They'll tell you the gap. They'll say, have a dose now and come back in you know, eight weeks, and they'll really help guide parents through yeah, yeah, that conversation with the GP is so important, isn't it? Is there anything else we need to understand about uh, vaccines and children who are severely immunocompromised or have a disability or those who have a complex um, multiple health conditions? Well, one of the most common questions I get asked by parents who do have a child with a, a disability or complex medical needs is, I'm worried about vaccinating my child because I think the vaccine might not be safe for them or it might make their condition worse. In fact, it's the opposite. So this is not a live vaccine. It's an inactivated vaccine. Um, so that's another thing that people worry about. Things like the measles vaccine or the chickenpox vaccines, they are live vaccines. This is not a live vaccine. Um, so that's really important for, for children with lowered immune systems. 
but um, it's actually more important that children who are at higher risk get vaccinated, not less important. So these are the kids that we think need protection from vaccination more than anything. And again, a, a common question we get asked is, well, my child had COVID infection two weeks ago, a month ago, they didn't get that sick, they're completely fine, aren't they? And look, we would say, no, they still need the recommended number of vaccines. And in general, we recommend if they've had COVID infection that you wait three months and then you get your next dose. So all these children need at least two doses of COVID vaccine. Those children with lowered immune systems might need three doses. Um, but it's very important that they get the recommended number of COVID vaccine doses, even if they've had COVID infection. And the other thing to say is we don't want children to get recurrent bouts of COVID infection. So even if they don't get necessarily that sick, we know that this is a, a nasty virus. It can cause inflammation in the body. It can cause inflammation of the heart, um, of the vessels. It can cause some neurological problems. So we don't want kids to get two, three, four, bouts of COVID infection. We want them to be protected by vaccines and we still want to really follow those COVID safe behaviours for them and for all the adults in the house so that they are not getting repeated bouts of COVID illness. Mm -hmm. I'd like us to talk about those COVID safe behaviours, but first, can we just talk a bit about medications and antivirals for those that are severely immunocompromised? So there are some antivirals that can be accessed, but these are only for children and adults who are at higher risk of getting very unwell. And again, it comes back to a lot of those complex medical conditions that I talked about before. So for example, um, children with congenital cardiac disease, neuromuscular conditions, moderate to severe asthma. So if they have a child um, that is needing recurrent doses of the oral steroid or admissions to hospital with asthma exacerbations, there's a whole list of conditions that mean children can access the antiviral medication. And why is that important? Well, if you give it early, within about two to three days of the child testing positive and having symptoms, it can prevent them from getting more severely unwell and needing to go to hospital for, for support and further management. And that's the same with adults. So I would encourage parents to have that conversation with their GP or their specialist. Um, often we're recommending that they have a script for the antiviral medication at home because the key with this medication is it does need to be given within the first two to three days really for it to have the best um, uh, benefit for the child and to stop them from getting very unwell. So there are antiviral medicines that kids can take, but they are only available for children and adults who are at higher risk of getting uh, COVID infection. Thanks for clarifying that, Margie. Um, let, let's go to this thing about COVID safe behaviours. What, what else can parents be doing to keep children safe? Well, this is really critical, I think, and I think we can all see now coming to the third end of the third year of the pandemic that a lot of people are just trying to walk away from COVID and pre pretend it doesn't exist. And sadly, the reality is quite different. It does exist. And in fact, we're in the middle of another wave where we're seeing COVID 
Um, cases go up in the community. We're seeing increased strain on our hospital system. You know, here at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, we've had to put out public messaging that um, the emergency department is struggling um, to cope with the demand, staff are unwell and needing to stay home to recover. So it's really important that we do everything we can to reduce transmission of COVID in, in the community and to prevent adults and kids getting infected. So that's things like wearing a mask indoors in crowded places. Now that is hard for children. It's also hard for, for some children with disabilities and it may not be possible. And we understand that. And as pediatricians, we're very sensitive to that. We know there are some kids that can't tolerate masks on their face, it makes them very distressed or anxious, and that's fine. But where possible, um, in very crowded places indoors, we're still recommending that kids and adults wear a mask. I certainly wear a mask, you know, when I come here into the hospital, when I catch the train, when I go into shops. So I think masks still have a role. And then, of course, those other really important, simple measures that we can take around hand washing, um, sneezing into our elbow, um, you know, if we have some respiratory symptoms. And, of course, you know, there are families that also choose and, you know, schools and other workplaces to try and do everything they can to improve ventilation and to have clean air. So whether that's just simply opening windows or whether it's actually getting some of those more fancy HEPA filters to try and clean the air. So I think it's a number of things, Kerry. It's really about hand washing and, you know, not sneezing into open air and sneezing on other people, using tissues. It's about using masks. It's about making sure that we ventilate the areas that we live and work in the best way we can and just being really conscious, um, social distancing, about the fact that COVID is still very much in the community. Sadly, we have these new variants um, and we need to be really conscious about not spreading COVID and, and trying doing everything we can to reduce COVID cases in the community. Mm. And what about getting tested, Margie? I think it's really important if people have symptoms that they test, um, you know, rat tests are still very uh, rapid antigen tests are still very uh, freely available um, in pharmacies. Um, we certainly have boxes of them at home, you know, schools, we're freely giving them out. I think we've got a whole cupboard of rat tests. Um, if people can't access them, then we would encourage them to go to the pharmacy or, or speak with their GP. But you know, testing, rat testing or, or PCR testing with symptoms, I think is still really important. Whilst there aren't strict recommendations anymore to isolate, it's still very clear that if you test positive and you have symptoms that you should stay at home until you don't have symptoms. And then to wear a mask in indoor settings in particular, when you go out again into the community and just be very conscious about, you know, not spreading COVID. I think a lot of us have that uh, COVID cupboard as you talk about. I've certainly got one here with the rats in it and masks and hand sanitizer, and it's all ready to go. I know. I mean, certainly, you know, in January, for example, many of us couldn't even access any tests. I remember our whole family got COVID in, in January, really ruined our summer. We had almost two weeks of isolation and we just couldn't get enough rat tests. But I think that is one blessing now that the tests are generally um, freely available. Mm -hmm. The other thing I should have said, Kerry, of course, you know, we talked about vaccination and the recommendations for vaccination and why it's so important, particularly for children with disabilities to have the recommended number of vaccines. But one thing I think we should touch on uh, is vaccine safety. Yes. 
because parents often say, oh, I don't know, my kid just didn't get that sick and I'm really worried the vaccines aren't safe. And, you know, like I said before, there's even that belief that they'll be more unsafe with children who have disabilities. And what I want to reassure parents about is that these vaccines are really safe and that there's a very, very robust vaccine monitoring system in Australia called Ausvac Safety. And that's actually pretty cool. It's um, this system of you know, general practices that um, participate across Australia, more than 500 practices and adults and children, so parents of children who get vaccines in these clinics, get text messages three days, eight days and about 40 days after the child gets a vaccine. And they're asked to report um, any symptoms that the child may have had, things like a local reaction, fatigue, headache, muscle or joint pain. So this way, we're actually able to track and monitor these symptoms in the community. And we know how commonly they occur. So we can reassure parents. So for example, about a quarter of children will experience a local reaction, a sore arm, a red arm. About 10% will experience some fatigue. About 7 or 8% will get a headache. And about 5% will get some muscle pains. And that lasts about one to two days. But importantly, less than 1% of children actually need to go and see their GP or a doctor for treatment of these symptoms. So in the most part, they might have a day at home where they feel a little bit lousy or off. They may have some Panadol or some Nurofen. But in general, they're not that affected by these side effects. Um, and, you know, parents usually don't need to stay home from work, for example, to look after them. And I think it's really important that we as doctors and, you know, as parents, we share our stories about vaccination. We talk about getting the vaccine, what we experience, so that everyone knows it's normal and common to experience some of these side effects. Doesn't mean that the vaccines are unsafe. It's actually completely expected that we'll get some of these side effects, but they don't last long. They're not serious. And then there is that one sort of more serious or rare side effect that I think we should touch on for parents because we know that they ask about it a lot. I certainly talk to lots of parents in my immunisation clinic about this potential for children to get inflammation of the heart muscle or the lining around the heart. And that has you know, a long name. It's called myocarditis or pericarditis. Um, and we did see this initially when teenagers started to get these mRNA vaccines. And this most commonly occurs in um, teenage boys um, around sort of 17 to 18. And it's more common after the second dose of COVID vaccine. And, you know, what happens is that um, young people can get a bit of chest pain or a little bit of an irregular heartbeat. They may need to go to their doctor. They may need a night or two in hospital, but they do recover. Um, and what's also really important for parents to know is that this inflammation of the heart has been really, really uncommon in primary school age children. And we almost have not seen it in children under the age of five from the vaccine. And in fact, this myocarditis or inflammation of the heart muscle is much more common with COVID infection itself. It's about seven times more common. So that's a lot of information, but I think it's worth just dwelling on the safety of the vaccines and what parents can expect because it's a very safe vaccine.
Mm, I like that notion of us all talking about this openly so we can feel that we've got the information we need and uh, understanding it from each other. Maggie, is there anything else that you think we should touch on before we finish up today? Look, the, the other thing I think I would say, you know, because really what we wanted to talk about today was, you know, um, keeping kids safe from COVID infection and, and part of that is getting a vaccine or two vaccines in the most part. And what I would say is, is myself as a immunisation paediatrician and a parent of four children, I think it's really critical that we do everything we can to make the immunisation experience for children a positive one. And you might say, well, that's a bit weird. It's a needle. How positive can it be? But there's a lot we can do to prepare kids to talk to them about what to expect, like I said before, so that they know they might get a sore arm or a bit of a headache and that's okay, it'll go away. We, we let them know what to expect. We ask them, so we encourage parents to use a bit of an immunisation plan. So to say to kids, well, who would you like to go with you to the appointment or what would you like to take with you, your favourite teddy or an iPad or, you know, just really help them prepare to get vaccinated. And then during the vaccination process, there's lots of distraction measures that we can use, bubbles, music, iPads. And if kids need more support for vaccination, so they're highly anxious and we know that there are some children who are more needle phobic or have needle anxiety, and to be fair, children um, with disabilities who have behavioural challenges also find this very, very distressing. And there are other pathways that parents can access for more intensive support. So, for example, here at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and another, a number of other places around Victoria, you can go to a hospital and you can get some awake medicine or what we call awake sedation um, which is temporary and can support children who need more intensive support to get their vaccine. So just important parents are aware of that. They can talk to their GP about it. And I don't know but whether it's available everywhere, but certainly in Victoria during the COVID-19 rollout, we had some amazing what we called DLOs or disability liaison officers who parents of children with disabilities could ring up and discuss their child's specific needs, their accessibility needs, their anxiety, what they required. And in fact, some of those children were able to be vaccinated at home. So I don't know whether that service is available everywhere in Australia, but I would just encourage parents if they have a child who finds immunisation very distressing to really reach out and to try and get the supports that they need so that they can get their child vaccinated safely and that it is a positive experience. Mm, thanks. I think that's a really nice note to end on that is thinking about the supports we can put in place for children with a disability and their families. So thank you for providing us with the information about COVID safe behaviours Families wanting further information can visit the Victorian State Government website at www.coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Thank you so much, Maggie, for sharing information with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Kerry. It was a real pleasure. And I hope that all the parents and families listening have a wonderful and safe Christmas and, and a much-earned rest and break over the summer holidays. Thank you. you've enjoyed this episode of family voices make sure you subscribe on your podcast app and feel free to leave a review to help us gain more of an understanding 
of what types of conversations are helpful to you. About the podcast can be found on ekiavic.org.au. Until next time, thank you for listening.